Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Welcome to our 2022 Virtual HOA Academy, class number five, May 2022. We're so happy to have you here with us today. We're going to be talking today about how HOAs and condos can effectively work with management companies and other vendors. We've got a really full class plan for today, so we're going to dig right into our procedures for today. First of all, we'd like to thank the cities of Avondale, Chandler, Glendale, Goodyear, Mesa, Peoria, Phoenix, Scottsdale, Surprise, and Tempe for for partnering with our law firm to provide these great HOA and Condo Academy classes virtually to a number of different people. We've been really successful in these classes. Each class has had over 100 attendees, and it really meets our goal of trying to provide free education for board members and homeowners so that they can do a better job managing, running, and living in their communities. My name is Beth Mulcahy, and I'm the managing partner of the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. I've enjoyed representing HOAs and condominiums for over 25 years. My firm currently represents over 1,000 planned communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. I also serve on my HOA board, and I have for many years. Not only have I worked with associations as their legal counsel for a quarter of a century, I also have served on my HOA board for over a decade. And I also had a little stint as a disgruntled owner in my association when I wasn't happy with things that were going on in our association. So I hope that the tips that we provide you today can help you better work with your management companies, give you suggestions on when it's time to move on and find a new management company, and also some suggestions on how to work with other vendors for your community, such as landscaping companies, pool companies, and how to handle large capital improvement projects in your association. Okay, so what's on our agenda today? We're going to start our class today with just a quick update on the Arizona 2022 legislative session. As you may know, our legislature has been in session for several months now, since January 2022. Um, Currently, the legislature is still working on the budget for the state of Arizona. Usually what happens is once the budget's kind of, once the budget is approved, it's going to be a 50-yard dash to the end of the legislative session. So it's kind of anticipated that there will, it's unlikely that there'll be any additional bills that pass regarding HOAs and condominiums this year. Although we're going to be watching very carefully once the legislature starts to wind down for the session to see if any other bills may slip through. As of right now, there's two bills that have been passed by both the House and the Senate in Arizona and have been signed by Governor Ducey. And these laws are going to become effective 91 days after the legislative session ends. And just quickly, what these bills are in terms of what's going to be happening in the legislature this year. I can give you a quick little update on the two bills, and then we're going to skip around a little on, the, on our agenda here today. And we're also going to do a little check-in as to which city you reside in. Okay, so first, the first bill that's passed in the legisl- legislature this year in Arizona is a bill on artificial grass um, being prohibited, prohibiting associations from using artificial grass, from prohibiting owners from installing artificial grass. And then the second bill talks about 
political and community activity on the association's common areas. So let's dig right into this. The first bill is House Bill 2131, and this talks about, like I said, artificial grass. So I think this bill is really consistent with the Arizona legislature taking the position that there's basically water shortage in Arizona. And we need to be doing things to limit the use of water by associations. And so basically what this new law says is that if the plant community documents allow natural grass on a member's property, which most of our clients do have natural grass on their property, and their documents do allow it, after the time of developer control, the association cannot prohibit installing or using artificial turf on any member's property. And so basically, once this law goes into effect, like we said, 91 days after the legislative session ends, what's going to happen is that associations are going to be faced with owners submitting applications for artificial turf. If your association is one of those associations where your documents allow natural grass on the member's property. So how do associations handle this once this change takes place? This bill, just one thing to back up on, only applies to planned communities. So if you're a condominium association, this bill does not apply to you. And again, just to refresher your planned community, if the association owns the common areas. A planned community can adopt reasonable rules regarding the installation and appearance of the artificial turf on the owner's property. But those rules cannot prevent installing artificial turf in the same manner that natural grass would be allowed by the community documents. And the association can pass reasonable rules regarding the location on the property and the percentage of the property that may be covered by artificial turf, just as long as it's to the same extent as natural grass. And so they can't say you can only have a smaller portion of the artificial grass when other owners are allowed to have a larger portion of real grass on the property. Also, the board can pass rules regarding the artificial turf quality. Another thing that the association can require is removal of a member's artificial turf. If the artificial turf creates a health or safety issue and a member doesn't correct it or and replacement or removal of the artificial turf is not maintained in accordance with the association's standards for maintenance. So as you can see, there are some exceptions to this new law regarding artificial turf. We can pass reasonable rules, as we talked about. We can require that there not be a health or safety issue created by the artificial turf. And we can require the owners to remove or replace it if it's not being maintained. There are some instances where the association, the planned community, can prohibit the installation of artificial turf, but only in these situations, and they're pretty limited. So if the artificial turf is installed in an area that the association maintains or irrigates, the association can prohibit that. So where we'll see this come into play is maybe the owner in a planned community, obviously they own their lot, but the association maintains the front yard area of their lot. And we have a number of associations that have these restrictions in their documents where the association is required to maintain up to the front door on a property. An owner can't just unilaterally decide in that situation that, hey, I want to install artificial turf in my front yard. 
because that would really change the maintenance responsibilities for the association. And so the legislature did give us that as an exception to this new law. Another area is if a planned community prohibits the new installation of natural grass on a member's property, the association can prohibit the installation of artificial turf on that member's property. There's one exception to that, though in that instance, the association cannot prohibit a member from converting natural grass to artificial turf on the member's property. So there are a couple exceptions on this new artificial turf law. We're going to have to kind of see how this all plays out. If anybody you know is interested in receiving some sample rules that can help your association on this, as soon as the legislative session ends, we're going to be putting out our cheat sheet on the 2022 legislative session. And we'll be including some sample rules to help your association navigate this new law in our sheet that we'll be releasing shortly after the legislative session ends. A couple other points on this new law on artificial turf is that if a planned community violates this law, a court can award reasonable attorney's fees and costs. There's litigation on this to the prevailing party. And also this law doesn't apply to a planned community that has unique vegetation and geologic characteristics that may require preservation by the association and in which the viability of those characteristics is protected supported or enhanced as a result of continued existence of natural landscaping materials. So where that may come into play is maybe there's some protected NAOS areas, like the city of Scottsdale has a number of those areas where an owner wouldn't be able to change that vegetation area to artificial turf. Okay, so we'll be keeping an eye on the artificial grass band bill. We'll be giving you a great cheat sheet that you can share with your boards with some sample rules as soon as the legislative session ends. The other bill we want to talk about deals with political and community activity. This bill is House Bill 2152. Again, this is going to go into effect 91 days after the legislative session ends, and we don't know when that session is going to end, probably in the next two to three weeks. This bill applies to planned communities and condominiums, as I said. And basically, this is just what I'm going to call a sign of the times bill. There's a lot of discussion on federal and state levels about political activities, whether it be in private areas, which are owned by private entities or in public areas. Um, This bill just expands the rights of owners to peacefully assemble on association common areas. So here's a quick summary of the bill. This bill allows members to display association-specific political signs on the member's property from the date the association provides its members with a written or absentee ballot for a specified election until three days after the election. So the first part of this bill says, okay, we can have association-specific political signs now on an owner's property in a planned community or a condominium, as long as those political signs that are association-specific are placed out on the member's property from the time that the absentee or written ballot is sent out to the community until three days after the election. So where can we see this come into play? I I genuinely do not believe that this is going to be something that is we're going to see in a lot of associations in Arizona. There will be some, but basically it would be like for board member elections. Let's say that we have multiple candidates running for a position on your board and owners want to put up political signs for those association-specific candidates. So Johnny Appleseed for president of the ABC Association. An owner would be allowed to do that from the date that the ballot is provided to the members until three days after the election. 
again, it, most of our clients have trouble even getting people to serve on the board. So the thought that there's actually going to be campaigning and political signs for board elections or maybe even a board removal process is something that I don't think is going to be widespread, but it's something that you need to know about in, in the event that you have an owner that exercises their right to have an association-specific political sign on their property. There are some restrictions on this. The political sign that the member can put on their property cannot be more than nine square feet, and there can be no profanity or discriminatory language on that political sign. The signs, interestingly, can be homemade. An association cannot pass any other rules or regulations except what we've talked about here today regarding those association-specific political signs. So just an interesting take on political sign laws. Remember that Arizona already has another law pertaining to state federal elections or any sort of propositions that might be decided by the state. There's a separate law that allows owners to place political signs on their property for those federal, state, and proposition type votes. And it has a different period for when those signs can be placed on the owner's property and taken down. It's different from this law. So it's just important to distinguish between those two different laws. On the second part of this new law regarding political and community activity, um, says that the association cannot prohibit or unreasonably restrict a unit owner or member's ability to peacefully assemble and use common areas of the community, whether it's indoors or outdoors, if done in compliance with reasonable restrictions for the use of that property, which are adopted by the board. And interestingly, HOAs and condos will be required to allow members to post notice of these types of meetings on association bulletin boards if they exist which are located on or within the association. So again, this is just kind of a weird new law saying that owners should be allowed to peacefully assemble on the association's common areas as long as their peaceful assembly is done in compliance with reasonable restrictions that the board can place on the property um, for these meetings. Again, we're just, again, I just don't see this being something that is going to be widespread by associations, but there will be some associations with owners that want to have a peaceful assembly to discuss how things are going at the association or maybe a peaceful assembly to discuss a certain issue at the association. They might even bring in a guest speaker or something like that. We're just going to have to keep an eye on it. And again, our firm, when we provide you with our 2022 legislative update cheat sheet, we will be providing you with some sample reasonable restrictions and rules for these for the peaceful assembly process. Okay, so just as a reminder, our law firm has a 2022 summary of pending Arizona legislation that we update every week that the legislature is in session. And that can be found on our website for our law firm, which is www.mulcahylawfirm.com. Or we're going to be sharing it with our viewers here today on Zoom and on Facebook Live. So you'll also be able to see that in the comment section here today or the Q&A section here today on either of those platforms. If you want to see the updated version in real time, every Monday it's updated and we put it on our website on the homepage. There's a link right there. Okay, I'm so happy to let you know that we have 103 people joining us here on Zoom today. So thank you so much for all of you for being here. And we have more live viewers also joining us on Facebook Live. So thanks everybody for taking the time to learn more about the important topics that we're going to be discussing today. As always, there's going to be a free question and answer at the end of the class. So we encourage you to submit your questions via the Q&A box on Zoom 
or the comments section on Facebook Live. And we will answer all of your legal questions during the session today. Please limit to one question per person and be specific in your question because it's hard for me sometimes to follow up with you on the question once your question has been submitted. Before we dive into our main topic today, I always like to know a little bit about who's joining us here today in our audience. So for those of you who are joining us via Zoom, we'll be sharing a poll on your screen. If you're joining us via Facebook, please share your response in the comments section. You know, our first question here today, our poll question, we're going to put two questions up at once. The first question is, in which city do you reside or in which city do you own property in an association? If you're joining us, maybe from somewhere else around the country today. So that's the first question. And then the second question is, let us know your current role with your association. Are you a board member? Are you a community manager? Are you an interested homeowner? Or are you something other? And so we're going to be sharing those results with you as soon as you answer the questions for us. Okay, awesome. Our results are right here. So we have 11% joining us here today from Chandler, 2% from Glendale, 4% from Goodyear, 8% from Mesa, 4% from Peoria, 19% from Phoenix, 47% from Scottsdale, you get the Gold Star Award today, and 2% from Surprise, 2% from Tempe. Great. Thank you very much for all of you who are joining us here today. And I'm just going to pull this down to see the second part of this. Let's see. And we have 75% of you here today as board members, 6% community managers, and 15% interested homeowners, and 4% other. So really good turnout today from all the different cities who we are co-partnering with today to present this class. Okay, let's switch over and talk a little bit about our main topic for today, the role of the management company and working with associations. So I'd like to just start out by saying that both boards and management companies need to recognize that there needs to be a teamwork mentality and a healthy business relationship between both the association board and the management company. And sometimes that just gets a little bit mixed up. And we're going to talk a little bit about what are some kind of trapdoors and problems that may come up as we proceed through this. But the one thing that I want everybody to remember as we're starting this presentation today is that the management company and the association are a team. Okay, ultimately, the association is the boss on the team, but the management company helps facilitate the team's actions. So the board is the obviously the boss and they're the ones that are ultimately making the decisions. But the management company is a very important team member and should be treated respectfully and should we should consider their suggestions. But ultimately the board makes the final decisions on things. And that's even though they're a volunteer board and they're not getting paid the big bucks to serve on the board, they ultimately, the bottom line is with them and they have to make the decisions that they think are what's best for the community. But they need to do that with the feedback and input from the management company and they need to oversee the management company. And we're going to talk about a lot of these different things. Sometimes as I've been in the industry for a quarter of a century, so sometimes I see that there's a contentious role between the management company and the board. And that is really unnecessary because when you're serving on a team together, you want both sides to succeed. You want to have a successful relationship because that is what builds a successful team. 
So you want to make sure that as we're navigating issues with the management company and other important team members, such as your landscape company or your pool maintenance company, your general maintenance company for your common areas, that yes, we're a team, but ultimately the board makes final decisions, but we need to work together effectively to be successful. Okay, let's talk a little bit, just a couple of basic things about What's the role of management company? So the management company or the manager's duties for the association really depend on what the management contract says. So typically there is a written management company contract between the association's board or the association as the entity, corporate entity and the management company. And the management company performs responsibilities pursuant to the management agreement. And here are some typical duties that would be listed in a management contract. So they're going to be helping with the initial collection of assessments from owners. They're going to be handling violation notices to members. They handle all aspects of the financials of the association, um, the creation of the budget, and then each month updating the year-to-date budget to keep the board updates on are we over budget, under budget, etc. The management company typically maintains all corporate records for the association. They help the board prepare for regular board meetings by sending out notice to the membership, preparing the board packets, answering questions at the meetings, the regular board meetings and the executive session meetings. The management company also has a very important role in setting up, preparing for and executing the annual meeting, which is the one meeting of the membership each year. And also just general correspondence to owners, responding to owners' questions, providing owners with information that they may need answering questions that may come up from owners. And they also, an important role of the management company is that they're overseeing vendors of the association and helping maintain the common areas of the association by overseeing those vendors who are doing those actions. In Arizona, there's many different types of um, management relationships between associations and management companies. So sometimes an association, probably the majority of the associations that we work with, choose to hire a management company. And that management company is an outside vendor and they rely on that management company to handle the day-to-day affairs of the association. And so the management company is an outside vendor, it's an independent contractor, it's licensed, bonded, insured. Another thing that some associations do typically, the really large master plan communities, they may have a paid staff. So their management team may be an employee of the association. And the paid staff, that's a little bit different role because they're on the property and the association is like a little city. And the association's manager is an employee, not an independent contractor. And then the third option is just having self-management where the board acts as the manager of the association. And they're obviously, they're unpaid. And that's typically for the really small associations where they just don't have the funding to bring in a management company to help them run the day-to-day affairs of the association. Okay, so let's switch gears and talk a little bit about what Arizona law says about management companies. Interestingly, in Arizona, there are no laws or government agencies that govern or regulate community association management companies. And so if you have a complaint with a management company, there, there's no arm in the state of Arizona that you can go to whereby they'll investigate the management company or file a formal complaint. So for example, like if you have a problem with your attorney, you can go to the State Bar of Arizona and lodge a complaint against the attorney. 
If you have a problem with a contractor that's required to be licensed by the Arizona Register of Contractors, you can go to the Arizona Register of Contractors and file a complaint against the contractor. But interestingly, in Arizona, there is no regulatory agency for property management companies, and there are no specific laws that apply to management companies in Arizona. And so it's an unregulated industry. And I think there's been some bills introduced over the years where there would be regulation of management companies, but they haven't really gone anywhere. And so currently, this is an unregulated industry. One thing I'd like a little bit of input from you now, because sometimes it's hard to teach these virtual classes when I don't have a live audience, which I'm used to prior to the pandemic. So what would be some reasons why boards might want to terminate a management company? And what are the problems that we see sometimes with management companies? And so I'm going to ask you if you're joining us on Zoom today, if maybe you can put some answers in the Q&A box, or if you're here on Facebook Live, adding something in the comment section which would be what are some of the reasons why you think, or maybe you have experience with why you would want to get rid of your management company or why you're unhappy with your management company. One thing I want to start out while I'm waiting for those kind of responses to come in is remember that there is no perfect management company in Arizona. I wish I could say that because there isn't. And it's just like there's no perfect lawyer. There's no perfect landscaping company. What you need to focus on when you're building a team and you're selecting a management company to work with, or you're evaluating whether the relationship you have with your current management company is good, is are the things that are important to your association are those being addressed by your management company? So for example, if it's really important for your management company to respond to owners in a timely manner, are you getting feedback from your owners? Hey, the manager never calls me back. Or are you seeing a large turnover with your management company in terms of employees? So every three months you get a new manager, that could be an issue that's a problem. So here are some reasons that we're seeing and I'm getting a lot of feedback from Zoom and Facebook Live. So that's awesome. So what are some common reasons that we're hearing live from you here today that there may need to be a change or maybe the relationship with the management company isn't working? So change of leadership in the board. So our board changed. And one of the reasons why we ran for the board was because we didn't like the management company or we didn't like how the management company was operating treating the homeowners, et cetera. Management company not being responsive to the board or to our owners. Management company not following their contractual responsibilities. Management company saying my way or the highway. Okay. Too much turnover, poor supervision of our contractors. Misuse of association funds. Okay, that's troubling. Costs for having a management company is a reason for not having. So yes, sometimes there are some hidden costs in in the management contract. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Financial discrepancies, maybe not having the financials correct or maybe not correcting mistakes. Poor communication with the board and follow through. Building a team is very difficult when the property manager changes every three months. I would agree with that. Not following the association's documents, poor accounting practices, non-responsive to owners and board members, manager is dismissive on challenges facing the board, management team is rude or short with owners. Oh my gosh, so much feedback. I think I hit a nerve on this one, right? Because we have over 50 responses 
in terms of what are some problems with management companies. So I know that we have some management or we have some managers who are on the call today. And if I had to guess, I bet the managers that are joining us here today are in that top 5% of superstar managers because they want to find out how to be better and how to have a good relationship with boards. If we have any managers that are in the audience, I challenge you, we won't use names, don't worry. Maybe what is some feedback from you, from the management side, when you see all these complaints? Is there anything that you want to say in response that maybe we might be able to add to share a different perspective here today? I think one of the the things that I hear from managers and with the large volume of associations that we work with, we work with managers often as well as boards. Some boards I work with directly. Some boards ask me to work with the manager to handle issues. One thing that I hear often is we have so much work and not enough time. So sometimes the managers are sacked with too many properties. And so it's hard for them to do an A-plus job on with the volume of work that they have. So maybe the management company is giving eight properties to one manager and maybe they only can handle five based upon the total number of units or lots that they are using. And sometimes you hear response from managers saying that there might be unreasonable expectations by the board or the board, if they don't really explain to me what their expectations are and if we could have a meeting to discuss things, I think that we could have a better relationship if they told to me what was important to them. And one thing that I would suggest to board members, 75% of you here today are board members, is... If you're thinking about making a change in your management company, here are some considerations that I'm going to give you to think about. And number one would be, is it the company or is it the manager that's the problem? If it's, if you really like the manager, but the manager is overworked and they have too many properties, maybe you need to go and talk with the CEO of the company and ask if the manager could have fewer properties because the you really like the manager, but they just don't have enough time to dedicate your property. On the flip side, if it's the manager, that's a problem. Maybe you've had turnover of managers every three months. You've got a new manager in there. And honestly, it takes three months for the manager to even get up to speed on what the issues are in your association. Then maybe you should also go to the CEO of the management company or the manager of managers and say, hey, we don't want any more turnover. And we want you to bring in a seasoned, experienced property manager to help our association. And we want to guarantee that this seasoned manager is going to be with our association for at least a year. And if there is going to be a transition, that we have a crossover transition period of several months before the new manager is totally up to speed before there's a changeover. You know, thinking about if you're unhappy with how the management relationship is going, maybe you should be thinking about this question. Is it the company or is it the manager? And can we go up the food chain in the management company and find out if this relationship can be salvaged? Is there something that we can do to make this work? Because changing management companies is it's a process and it takes time and effort And it costs money and it causes some disruption to your community. So you may want to think about taking that step first before you just need your, okay, we're going to fire the management company type of thing.
Also, something to think about if you're thinking about making a change in the management company is a timing. What's the timing of the change? So number one, you should be talking to your trusted advisor, who is your lawyer for the association, about what is the procedure to terminate the management company. And the the best way to do that is to show your attorney a copy of the management agreement and have look at the termination provisions together. Now, make sure that your attorney knows that the discussion between the attorney and the board regarding terminating the management company is something that is confidential and should not be disclosed to the management company. I mean, I, th- I would think that would, I wouldn't need to say that, but I do need to say that because there are times where that relationship gets a little blurred. Our firm, if you you know tell us confidential information, we would never, ever disclose it to the management company. You also want to make sure that your attorney is really careful on their billing entry, on their bills, that they don't telegraph to the management company that, hey, the board just called the attorney to talk about terminating the management company. So we're going to want to be careful how we word our billing statements so that we're not providing management company with notice inadvertently that they're about ready to be canned. So the first thing is look at the management contract. How easy is it to terminate the contract? Is it 30 days without cause? That's preferable. Is it one of these weird contracts where you can only terminate 90 days before the contract renews another year? Whenever I see a contract like that, I always think to myself that, hey, the management company isn't really secure in their services. So they have to write up this contract that makes it really difficult for the board to terminate them. And so it's just something to think about there. But before you would ever tell the management company that you're firing them, you should be talking with your attorney about what the termination provisions state and coming up with a game plan on how to terminate them. Another thing to think about on the timing of the change is, is it a good idea to to make a change right before the association's annual meeting? It may not be because bringing in a new management company to run the annual meeting and they don't have any institutional knowledge of the association, that may not be a good thing. And so you want to pre-think, okay, what's the timing of this termination? What's that going to look like based on the contract and based upon what our association has down the road in the next few months? Because we want to make sure that we set the new management company up for success. Another thing is you may want to do it a less busy time of the year, which kind of is typically the summertime in Arizona or at fiscal year end. So there's just a clean break in the financial books and records of the association. So these are all considerations that your board needs to make. Sometimes the management company, they already know that they're going to be terminated, maybe because the relationship isn't going well, or maybe from their perspective, they don't want to work with the board anymore. Sometimes the management company will just send the board a termination letter and say, you know, pursuant to the contract, we're terminating you. If that happens, don't panic as a board. Just get in touch with your trusted advisors as soon as possible because we need to kick it in high gear and start working on the process to select a new management company. And we're going to need to do that on a more expedited basis. And so that's definitely the time you immediately reach out to your trusted advisor, your lawyer, and you start mapping out what's the plan to make a change in the management company. Okay, before we talk about the process to follow to select a new management company, I want to just make some comments about, okay, so now we've talked about termination, right? Either the board's terminating the management company or the management company is terminating the board. One piece of advice that I'd like to give to both sides of this situation, what doesn't matter who's terminating who, 
is make it a positive transition. It doesn't help anybody. As a matter of fact, it ends up costing everybody significantly more money if you're fighting and nitpicking and trash talking and disparaging each other to third parties, withholding records, withholding money that needs to be transferred to the new management company. All of this gamesmanship hurts everybody. And it results in hurting your association and your members, which the board was, that's your fiduciary obligation to act in the best interest of the association. So I would encourage both sides that when you're at the end of a relationship, be professional, live up to the terms of the contract, refrain from speaking negatively about either, either side should refrain from speaking negatively about the other side. And just do what you're supposed to do. Make it as positive of a transition as possible. Because if you don't do that, it ends up you you lose records. You might be involved in a defamation lawsuit. The transition is horrible. And the new bank accounts can't be set up. And owners don't know where to pay their assessments. And it's just really a mess. So when the relationship's over, be professional is just a really important tip that I would suggest to both sides as you're navigating the termination. Okay, now let's talk about what's the process you want to follow if you've decided that you can't work things out with the management company or they can't work things out with the association. What can boards do when you're in this situation? Selection of a management company is going to take a little bit of time to research and you need to do your due diligence as a board. But sometimes, like I said, quick turnaround is needed. And we'll talk a little bit about how to expedite things if that's the case. Other times you have more time, like you have three months, six months, whatever, and you can more slowly ease into this process. Remember that the goal is to find a management company with the expertise and services that are going to meet the needs of the association. So one suggestion I have is if you're in the market to hire a new management company, as a board, think about what are the things that are most important to you. For example, I have right now, I probably have 10 situations right now in our firm where boards are looking to hire a new management company. The first question that I ask is, what's important to your board? What were some problems in the prior relationship? And we need to find a company that's going to excel in those problem areas because those are areas of importance. And so we need to focus on what wasn't working and then think about we need to find a company that's strong in those areas. And then by matching your needs as an association with a management company's strengths, both parties are going to find a better working relationship and it's going to be a better fit for everybody. And it's important to remember, just this is just like anything in life, sometimes the lowest bid is not always the best fit. So we're going to talk about when we look at the contracts that are submitted by the management companies, different things that you should consider, especially when you're interviewing them, the questions that you're asking and their responses. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what's the process to hire a management company. So number one, identify and create a timeline for the selection process. Now, if you're on a very short timeline, you may need to delegate this to a committee or maybe even to your attorney to help you navigate this process quickly. Let's say you have a 30 or 45 days to select a new management company. Otherwise, maybe the board handles it. Maybe one or two board members are overseeing the process. The goal, obviously, is to create a timeline, number one, 
a timeline in terms of when you're going to be sending out a request for bids, when you're going to be conducting the interviews, when you're going to be selecting the management company, and the transition will take place to the new management company. And you're going to want to determine in this process what timeline restraints you have. And step two then is to start developing bidding specifications. So our firm has a sample request for proposal form that we're happy to share with anybody. If you email me at bmulcahy at mulcahylawfirm.com, I'm happy to share it with you. And basically, it's just an RFP that make it For your association, you give them a little bit of information about your association, and then it asks for them to provide information about the management services that they can provide to your association. This is going to include how much what's your budget for management services and also what level of service the association is asking for the management company to provide. And this is important because you want to make sure that you are sending out your bid, your request for proposal. And it's clear to the management companies, this is exactly what we want. This is the services we want. So you make sure it's a good fit for the management company and the association. Then identify a list of companies that you are going to want to send out the bids to. Really, only companies that specialize in association management should be considered. Talk with other associations. Maybe you have associations in your neighborhood and you know that they're happy with their management company or that the property looks great. Check in with the boards of those associations. If you have their contact information, find out who's managing them. Check with your trusted advisors, your attorney, really any your insurance agents, your reserve companies to see if they have any feedback on who they think would be a good fit, especially your attorney, because we work with all the management companies in the Valley. So we have a pretty good feel for what are the strengths and weaknesses of each management company in the Valley. And we know, obviously, if we've been working with you through the termination process, what some of the problems may have been. And we'll be able to put you in contact with some management companies that we think would be a better fit than what you may currently have. Also, geographic location of the management company may be an important thing because if your management company is in Flagstaff and your property is in Mesa, it may be difficult for the manager to actually get to your property. So you want to consider the geographic location of the management company. Do they have other properties that are close by? And it's not one size fits all. We have to look at maybe you go with a medium-sized management company or a small management company if you're a smaller association. Or maybe I have some associations that are like little cities, basically, and they have 5,000 homes. And basically, they really do need a large management company because they have all kinds of tax needs and other complicated things where the larger management companies would have more experience in working with an association of that size. Okay, so now we start our timeline with step one. We developed our RFP in step two. Step three, we came up with a list of qualified candidates. Step four is we narrow the field to maybe three to five management companies. And we send out the request for bid to the management company. And as part of this, the management company has to respond back to all the questions that we have listed in the request for proposal. And if you're interested in getting a copy of the RFP for free, remember you can contact me at bmulcahy at mulcahylawfirm.com. And we're happy to give you a free sample that you can use for your association. Some things that we do, so now we send out the RFP to companies that you select to send out the RFP to. 
Sometimes the companies will ask for a site visit and they want to get to know the board before they bid. That's totally okay. Some associations have a pre-bidding conference where they have all the management companies come out at one time and they all walk the property so you don't have to do it like five times with five different companies. But that's gone a little bit by the wayside since the pandemic. It's less likely that's happening, frankly. But I think at a minimum, the management company should be doing some research on your association to they probably should be driving out to your property. They may want to be calling the board president or the contact person to ask for questions that they may have on your property and get to know you better. Okay, so the next step is step six. At this point, we're following the timeline that we created in step one and the bids are closed. Um, the open bids are received. The board is going to be comparing and reviewing bidders in an open discussion by the board of directors. So again, really important that this is done in an open board meeting. This should not be done in an executive session. Now, if you're on an expedited time frame, maybe your attorney is helping you through this process and they're putting the different management companies into a grid showing the differences between the management companies because the RFP should be followed when they respond. All the information should be comparing apples to apples, so it should be real easy to put the information into a grid so you can compare management company A, B, C, D, E in terms of what services they offer, the costs that they charge, etc. And that helps you by putting together that information in a side-by-side comparative format. It really helps the board make some good decisions in terms of you know, how many of these companies that have submitted a bid are we going to actually interview? And it may, I would say, if you can interview two or three, that would be a good suggestion. After you've interviewed them, and we have a great summary sheet that we're going to be providing you, it's called How to Select a Management Company. It's a cheat sheet that our firm has put out. And those are great questions to ask the management company. Remember that the cheat sheet that we have is a really extensive list. If you made a management company answer every one of those questions, it would be man overboard. So I would just select the most important questions that you think are important to your association and ask those during the interview process. You'll also want to review the candidate's references. So the management company should be providing references. You should ask for proof of insurance so that you're making sure that their insurance is current and consistent with what they submitted on their RFP. Um, The next thing is identify who the leading candidate is. Maybe there's a second interview, maybe not. The first interview probably covers it, but sometimes if there's a lot of time, maybe the the board will bring out a company that they really like for a second interview. And then really the final thing is you want to be real careful that the management company typically will send over their contract, their management company's contract to the board. You don't want to tell them they're hired until you've negotiated the contract. So a lot of boards like to skip, you know, they go to the interview with a management company, they really like a candidate, and then they make the mistake of saying, you're hired, right? But we haven't seen the contract yet, so don't do that. What you wanna do is tell the management company that you really like, maybe the leader, we really like you. You did a really great job in the interview and we're interested in hearing more. Can you send over your contract so we can take a look at it? And then the board should give the contract to the association's attorney. The association's attorney should look at it. The things that I'm looking for in a contract is I want my boards to be able to get out of the contract easily. So 30 or 60 day termination provision with or without cause. I'm checking the indemnification provisions to make sure that they're not one-sided so that we're not providing 
indemnification, indemnifying the management company, but the management company has is negligent on something. Really, if it's their fault, they should be providing their own legal defense if they're sued. So we're going to look at the indemnification language carefully. We're going to look at the amounts that they're charging on the Exhibit A. Are they similar to industry standards or are they nickel and diming you? And we'll give you feedback on that. And so then once we give some feedback on the contract, usually it's not very much. We're not redlining the whole thing. There's maybe one or two comments, three comments that we make suggestions to the board so that you can have a contract that's fair. And then at that point, then the board just makes it goes back to the management company or maybe the attorney sends it back to the management company suggesting these changes. And most of the time, there's a little bit of negotiating and then the contract signed by the parties. And then you enter into the phase where once a contract signed, we will typically notify the other management company that they're being terminated or maybe the association's already been terminated by the management company. And then you work with both the old management company and the new management company to make sure that there's a successful transition. If there's any problems with the transition, make sure that you're bringing the association's attorney in to assist with the problems. So sometimes there's some little, most of the time there's not problems. Truthfully, typically it's very professionally handled, but occasionally the old management company refuses to give documents to the new management company or refuses to give information so that the new management company can be successful in setting up the names of the homeowners and the files and the bank account if they're changing banks. Sometimes there's a little scuttle there. Just bring your attorney in to help you through that process if you have that happen. Okay, let's see. So really, that's A to Z on hiring a new management company. So we talked a lot about, is this relationship able to saved, right? Can a manager change, make the situation better? Can we talk with management company about improvement in service, et cetera? That's not working. And we gave you tips on how to go through and select a new management company. Um, a couple of suggestions for managers that I think would be really helpful. I know we only have a couple of managers on here today, but maybe the boards could take this back to the management company or your managers as a helpful suggestion. One of the things that I hear in our industry often is that the managers will go to the board meeting and they'll get a number of things that they're supposed to be working on between the board meeting in May and the board meeting that's coming up in June. And what typically happens is the manager gets busy with other properties because they have not just your property. Sometimes they have five, six, seven, eight other properties, and they don't really get around to doing your stuff until right before your meeting. And so one suggestion that I give to boards and management companies is to have a check-in process every week. Make this an expectation that the management company does this every week. So every Friday, the manager sends an email to the board updating them on what happened that week, including status of any pending items the board has given them to work on between meetings or maybe anything that the board members may have asked them to do that week. And that way it keeps the manager accountable and it keeps that list of to-do things right in front of them. And each week they have to be accountable in terms of here's the update. And maybe there might be some other things that happen like, oh, the tree trimming starting on Monday, just letting everybody know the pool is going to need to be closed on Friday because the cool decking is being repaired or whatever. Just providing notice to the board about important information, status on things that the manager has been asked to do. 
And it's a really successful tool because what I find, I'm in the industry too, is that if you're not keeping the boards informed about the issues that are coming up, the weekends are typically the time when board members will start emailing, hey, what's the status of this? What's the status of that? And if you give them that information on Friday before you leave for the day, it just sets everybody up to have a happy weekend. The board knows that their items were addressed this week. And if they weren't addressed this week, there's a plan for them for next week. And the manager keeps track of the things that they were working on. And it just makes things work significantly better in an association. So I'd like to pass that tip along. If your association isn't doing that, you may want to ask your manager to give. It's not a full board packet. It's an email. It's a very simple email saying, here's what happened this week at the association. Here's my to-do list. Here's what I accomplished. And it's just a really good communication tools to keep the relationship successful and productive. Okay, let's talk about some other vendors. We've got a couple minutes. Landscapers, pool, common area maintenance, reserve companies, CPA, insurance agents, attorneys. How can the boards best manage the other vendors? So fortunately, the management company will help you manage the landscapers, the pool, the maintenance. But making sure that if you are giving the management company direction like we are unhappy. The grass isn't looking very good at the front of the community. Helping the management company be successful. You know, if you can ask for status on something and if it's not being done, ask the manager to invite the landscaper to come to the meeting, the board meeting. With Zoom technology, really, it's very easy for your vendors to join a meeting for a few minutes and give an update. Double check the contracts with these vendors if they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Make sure that you are holding them accountable and asking them to make positive change. With regard to some of these other vendors, you don't really have usually a lot of contact with your reserve companies or your insurance agent or your CPA, but just get to know them. You don't want to have a gigantic insurance claim at your association and never have met your insurance agent, right? Because guess what? They're going to 1-800 you. If you have a 1-800-U meeting, they're going to send you to the corporate office and you're going to be making a claim to a call center. You want to establish relationships with some of these other important vendors, whether it's your landscaping CEO or the maintenance supervisor, the reserve company CEO or whoever is the key person at the reserve company, your CPA. Being able to call the CPA and ask a tax question is really a valuable benefit. Your insurance agent, if there's any sort of a claim or you're not sure if you should make a claim or not, make sure you're talking with your attorney about that, etc. Just establishing a relationship so when a problem arises, you have that relationship and they're going to take your call. Okay, let's talk a little bit about working effectively with association vendors. If you hear some steps that are going to help your boards, if you're looking for contractors, ask around for information. If you have an association that's nearby you, that their landscaping looks amazing, find the contact information for the board. You can find that by going to the Corporation Commission and ask who the landscaping company is. Ask the management company, hey, who's the landscaping company here? Their property looks really nice. Make sure you're checking the references for these contractors that you're hiring. Check to see if any of the contractors have complaints against them with entities that regulate them. For example, check with the Arizona Register of Contractors to see if the contractor has any complaints or censures. So if you're hiring a roofing company to do a $200,000 re-roofing of your common areas or of your clubhouse roof, you should be checking 
the roofing company's record with the Arizona Register of Contractors. And if you're seeing complaints and violations, that's not a good sign. Make sure you read our cheat sheet. We have a great cheat sheet on bidding and contracting, how to select contractors. We encourage you to take a look at that. We're going to be sharing that with you on Zoom and also on Facebook Live. And you can also find a copy of that at any time on our firm's website at mulcahylawfirm.com under our cheat sheets tab. Also, our firm is often asked for advice on how to handle problems with a vendor. Just real briefly, some things to think about. If you do have a problem with a vendor other than your management company, reach out to the vendor, talk with them about the issue, look at the contract, reach out to your trusted advisors, your attorney. You might be able to make a complaint with on the, the contractor with the register of contractors to get them to do the work properly. There are a lot of options. So you want to make sure that you're talking with your management company and your attorney to help you navigate those problems. Switching gears now, just to briefly talk about a couple other things. If you have a large-scale capital improvement project in your association, these are big items like re-roofing, painting, maybe a huge re-landscaping process, like you're converting from turf to desert landscaping. Make sure you're using licensed, bonded, and insured contractors, even for small jobs. It's really important that you're using licensed, bonded, and insured contractors. So if anything goes wrong, um, you have available remedies to assist your association, whether it's insurance or making a claim with the register of contractors. Get enough bids so that you know what the market rate is for the work that's being done. I know it's really hard right now for the small jobs to get more than two bids, but do your best to get at least two bids for small jobs and three bids for larger projects, like 100000 or more. Talk with your attorney. If you have to do a special assessment, make sure or get a loan for your association to fund one of these large capital improvement projects. Make sure you're talking with your attorney about the procedure to follow to levy a special assessment or the procedure, whether you're allowed to get a loan for your association and to fund this project and the process to do that. One more thing that I want to mention, please be careful on hiring amongst unlicensed contractors. I have seen many associations in the past 26 years who are penny wise and pound foolish. So they're hiring unlicensed contractors to do work on their property and it ends up costing them more money in the long run because the contractor gets injured and then they claim that they weren't an independent contractor, they were actually your employee. We've seen that happen with a roofing company once. It was unlicensed, unbonded, the roofer fell halfway through the project. And the next thing we knew, we were involved in a worker's compensation claim. And he was claiming he was an employee and we needed to pay his medical bills. So making sure that the contractors you hire are licensed, bonded, and insured is just a very important thing that your board should be doing to protect the assets of the association and to be acting in the best interests of the association. Okay, some closing thoughts on working with management companies and vendors. Don't forget that when you're running an association, we're all a team, okay? So the HOA board or the condo board, you're the captain of the team, but the vendor is a valued team member. So you wanna be nice and respectful to your vendors, but hold them accountable to the terms of their contract. When there are problems, and let me tell you, there's always going to be problems. That's just how business works. Communicate with the vendor. Try to find common ground. Listen to their side of the story. Give them guidance on how they can improve or what needs to be changed. 
and give them a time period that's reasonable to turn things around and fix things. No one, it's time to make a change, right? If it's if the relationship can't be saved, it's time for change. If you know you've given them an opportunity to correct it and they continue to not correct it, it's time for a change. Talk with your trusted advisors, like your lawyer. Make sure that the lawyer is independent of the management company and is going to keep everything that you tell them confidential and get their opinion and advice on the situation. Um, use your association's attorney to help you get through any difficulties with the vendor, to terminate a vendor, and help you obtain a new contract with a new vendor. And so basically, that's our presentation for today. We had a great turnout, and now we're going to go right into the questions that have already been submitted. And it looks like we have, gosh, we've got some great questions. It's like we have over 12 questions. So I'm just, what we typically do is we just, I state the question, give a quick answer. First question is, if the community wanted to take action to remove a director, does signing a petition constitute a vote by proxy? I've read a couple of times that a group of homeowners marched into a board meeting with a removal petition in hand and tried to dismiss multiple directors. However, the state statutes state that a special meeting must be called for a vote. Would a signed petition stand the test of a vote? And if we gather the signatures for a removal petition, could a separate proxy be gathered at the same time to be presented at the special meeting? Okay, so here's some thoughts on the board removal process. So remember that it doesn't matter what your bylaws state. Some bylaws are outdated and don't have the correct procedure in there on how to remove a director. You have to follow what Arizona law states on removing a director from office. And we have a really good summary that we have on our website if you're in the market to remove your board or remove a member of your board. And that's on our top 10 cheat sheet. You can go to mulcahylawfirm.com, click on cheat sheets, go to the top 10 cheat sheet, top 10 things you need to know about Arizona law. It's number six. Bottom line is there's a whole process under Arizona law. The process starts with a petition being submitted to the board. That petition doesn't summarily dismiss the board, right? The petition is you have to meet certain benchmark requirements. So, for example, if your association has fewer than 1,000 members, either 10% or 25% of the owners must sign the petition or 100 owners, whichever is less. If you're in that category, you'd have to submit a petition signed by 25% of your owners. It's one vote per lot or unit. And then the board has to follow a process to verify the signatures, see if anybody who is delinquent signed the signatures and do they still have the 25%. And then if they do, then we have a meeting 30 days out whereby the entire community can vote on whether to remove a director or directors or retain them. So if you want more information on the full process, go to our cheat sheet, top 10 cheat sheet, and it's number six on that top 10 cheat sheet. So short answer would be no. If owners march into a board meeting with a petition that is not following the law and it would not be considered a valid removal of the board, there's an entire process that has to be followed. Okay, our second question. This one is submitted from an owner. Can we leave or remove our HOA? Our HOA. Our HOA just collects money and doesn't do anything. We need to tell them what to do. Okay, so this is obviously written from an owner's perspective. So can you leave being a member of your association? Well, if you sell your property, yes, but it's 
very impossible, basically, for you to remove yourself from your association. And so you might be considering removing your board. We just talked about that process in the last question and answer. What you might want to do is volunteer to be on the board. And maybe you'll find some more information about what are the challenges the board's facing and what exactly they do for your association. And maybe you can roll up your sleeves and help. Question three, is there a list of recommended flat roofing contractors for a roof replacement in a condo association? Here's something that we could do if you're interested in doing this. There's a Facebook page or Facebook group called Arizona Self-Managed Homeowners Associations. You might want to throw that on as a question on that Facebook page and see if you get any recommendations. I would recommend that you ask other associations that are close to you that have flat roofs. Hey, who do you use for your roofing contractors and are you happy with them? Ask your management company. Do you have any experience with roofing companies that handle flat roofs? You may want to go to, there are several trade groups that are for roofing companies and ask them for recommendations or names of companies and then interview them and check their references. The next question, is it required that every board member be at every meeting with a vendor or just when just gathering information? Okay, so the question is, we're having a meeting with a vendor. Does it have to be everybody on the board there, which makes it obviously an open board meeting? You'd have to give notice, or can we have fewer than a board there, a quorum of the board? It really just depends on how your association operates. Most associations, I mean, it, usually there's one person on the board who takes the lead on having a meeting with a vendor to discuss something, and then they come back and report to the board. Typically, that's the president. But other associations, they have the vendor come to a board meeting and give updates. It really just depends. So is it required? No, it's not required that every board member be at every meeting with a vendor. That's an unreasonable request, in my opinion. Okay, next question. I am a director. Can I directly ask our landscaping, the watering schedule, because our property manager does not take action in a timely manner? Okay, so you're a director of your association. What I would recommend that you do here is at your next board meeting, talk with your board about this and say, I am interested in finding out what the watering schedule is. Can the board direct me to have a communication with the vendor on this topic? What you don't want to have happen and vendors don't like this is when they have multiple board members contacting them, asking different information the vendor really probably wants only one or two contacts for the association, maybe the manager and then a board member that has authority. So keep that in mind. Next question. If a newer management company is aggressive in issuance of new and repeated violations for weeds or trash cans out, is it likely at the request of the board? Would a more gradual transition to stricter enforcement be recommended? Okay, that's a really good question because this does happen. Remember when we talked about different management companies having different strengths and weaknesses? So some management companies, when they come in as a new management company, the first thing that they'll do is they'll do a full inspection of the property. And maybe they're going to be pickier or more strict than the prior management company. And the first thing that they do is they issue a whole bunch of violation notices. That may not be the best PR move for the new management company or the board because it gets everybody all upset. 
So what I would recommend is at the time that there's going to be a management change, if one of the issues is, hey, we're going to be cracking down on violations more, I would be sending out notices to your owners saying, just general notices to all owners saying, you know, one of the goals of the board in 2022, the summer of 2022, is that we're really going to be more focused on making sure people are maintaining their properties and making sure that people are putting their trash cans in at the times that they're supposed to be doing, giving them some warning, talk about it at board meetings, and then gradually ease into these notices. And maybe the first notices that you're sending out are courtesy reminder notices, maybe a little bit friendlier wording. Okay, next question. New owners in a 55 plus condo association have not provided a permanent resident of the appropriate age and have been asked to sell. The unit is now for sale. Can the association ask them to vacate the unit before it's sold? What are the options for the association? Okay, so we've got apparently there is a 55 and over community association or condo association where the resident is not 55, or at least one resident is not 55. And for whatever reason, the board is enforcing their CCNRs, which is fine. And then the, the unit's for sale. So can the association make them vacate the unit before it's sold? I'd have to look at what your documents state, but probably yes. What are some options that they would have? The board can make an exception. You have to look at what the document state, right? So one exception would be that state and federal law says that only 80% have to be 55 or over. One, one resident in the unit has to be 55 or over. Maybe you put them in that 20% category, or maybe you take a real strict approach on it. It just depends how your association wants to handle it. But I would recommend that the board be talking to your attorney because fair housing issues are complicated and they want to make sure that if they are asking the owner to vacate the unit, that we're on strong legal ground. Okay, next question. Number seven, I'm always cautious about change. Oftentimes, you just trade one problem for another. That said, is it reasonable to ex expect the management company to be an informed, trusted advisor, such as financial ideas, guidance, five and 10-year budget planning, capital budget planning, in my experience so far, it seems that they are just very administrative and not problem solving. Do I expect too much or too little? This is a really good question. I think I hit on this a little bit in the presentation when we talked about having a management company that meets your needs. So it's hard for me to say, should you change because of these issues, budgeting type things, long-term planning for your association? If they're really strong on the administrative side and they're doing a good job, maybe you have the board take more of a lead on some of these long-range planning items, especially if you have somebody on your board who has expertise on that. But if you're an association that is looking at a plethora of problems and there's a lot of deferred maintenance, things aren't going well because you don't have a plan on any of these things, maybe it is time for a change. Or maybe the management company that you have needs to shift their focus to helping you dig out of the problem. So do I expect too much or too little is your question? It, it really just depends. If this is something that is the most important part of your responsibility as a board, then maybe you do need to bring in an expert. If not, and there's other people on your board that can come in and help as volunteers, help you come up with these ideas, or maybe you bring in an expert to help you on some of these things that could be an option as well. Question eight, 
who should oversee the work of vendors such as landscapers, the manager, or the committee chairs? It really depends. The board makes the decision and maybe the management contract says the management company is responsible for this. Maybe the committee chairs are doing it per the direction of the company leads the board. It really just changes from every association. So you have to do what's best for your association. Question nine, what information needs to stay forever in lot files? We are an age-restricted community and have years of personal IDs verifying age compliance and previous owner applications. What can we get rid of? What must we keep? Okay, we have a great cheat sheet on records retention. So I would encourage you to go to our website, mulcahylawfirm.com. Click on our cheat sheets page, type in the keyword records, and that will give you some really good tips on what to keep and what to toss in lot files. As a rule of thumb, any current owner, there has to be some thought on these files because if you're an age-restricted community, you have to make sure that at least one resident is age 55 or over. And so you wouldn't want to go back and just do a mass toss of records if a current owner, if their identification is maybe from 15 years ago, it is still relevant. We'd still have to prove that self got that identification if we get audited on the Fair Housing Act. And so I think what I would recommend is you'd have to sift through those files to determine what is no longer needed. So if you've got somebody in there that's identification information from 15 years ago, they haven't owned the property in a long time, the statute of limitations has run, so that would be something that you could get rid of. So it's you really have to look at this on a case-by-case basis. I can't just tell you to toss a bunch of records. I would say that if the owner hasn't been an owner for more than seven years, or if the owner or the resident hasn't been residing there for seven or more years, you could probably toss it. But some associations now with the ability to scan things, they might just keep it in online file. Okay, our 10th question is a little bit longer question. Is there any source of reasonable expectations for management companies? For example, we are seeking improvement in tracking resolution of owner requests as signed action items, managing compliance issues. Our company is having difficulty and resisting providing any kind of clear reporting, saying that requires manual effort. Are we being unreasonable to expect this type of reporting? Other service companies use software packages that make tracking t- tickets easy. Is that not available, overly expensive in the community management industry? We don't know if changing management companies will help resolve this or if this is an issue with all management companies that we simply need to live with. Okay, so great question. I think it is a reasonable expectation for your association to have a manner to track owner requests and how they've been resolved. I think whether it's manual or electronic, that's something that your management company should be doing. Because ultimately, you you answer to the owners. And if the management company is not responding to the owners, it makes it look like the board isn't responding. Also, assigned action items. One way to make them accountable would be to ask them to do that Friday email to the board in terms of where they are on that. Also, managing compliance issues and delinquencies should be just a report in your monthly packet. So I think that the tracking resolution of owner requests, if they don't have an online system that you can look at it in real time that it's been done and what's happened, 
they should at a minimum put that either in the Friday email or in the board packet, how that issue was handled. Same thing with the clients issues and non-payment assessments. Those should all be provided in a report at the board meeting. Okay, next question. If a newer management company is aggressive in issuance of new and repeated violations, looks like I think we already answered that question. So I'm going to skip to the next one. Are there requirements for all board members to approve communications, such as newsletter, meeting recaps from the manager to the homeowners? We have experienced difficulty in getting communications out because all five board members have not responded to the draft provided by the manager. How to best handle communications? Do we have to wait for 100% approval or can we tell board members to reply by a certain date? Otherwise, the mailing is going out. I think that's actually a really great solution. Sometimes people try to make things perfect and it's better just to get it out, right? And so I think a good way to handle it would be give them a reasonable period of time for the board to, res- to respond to any changes they may have. And I would say that's maybe one or two days. And if they don't respond by a date certain, that the mailing is going to go out to the members with the update. I think that's a really reasonable response. Okay, question 12. Looks like we only have a few more questions. That's great. Can board members talk to each other without the management being present? That's a really good question. So a couple ways to analyze this. Number one, anytime you have a quorum of the board present discussing association business, it needs to be an open board meeting, unless it's one of the executive session topics where you can go into executive session. But almost all the board's discussions really should be done in the open session, unless it's like advice from legal counsel or could talk about performance of a vendor you could do in an executive session, if that's what you're going to be talking about as a board. So can the board talk to each other without the management being present? Of course. Remember, go back to some of the basics that we talked about here today. The board is the team captain. The board is the boss. You make decisions as the boss, right? And one decision that you can make is, hey, we'd like to have a discussion of the board, maybe about the performance of the management company. And we want to do that in a confidential setting without the management company present. The best way to handle that is to just be honest with the management company and say, We're going to be doing a review of how things are going and we're going to be doing it. Typically, this is going to be something job performance. You can push over to the executive session. And if a quorum of the board is going to be present, you still have to provide 48 hours notice to the membership that you're having an executive session and what you're going to be talking about. And you absolutely have the right to do that. So if your management company is saying, I have to be present, that's a power play. And they don't have to be present, but somebody else on the board who is present should be taking minutes. Minutes are needed and those minutes should be placed in the official records of the association. So talk to your attorney if you're having problems like this, because it does seem like the management company is trying to be there during all your discussions and maybe trying to pressure you for them to be there. And they really, you're the boss and you're the ones that would make that decision. Next question, number 13. Do you have a cheat sheet when a declarant or development is not performing per the CCNRs? An example is the declarant has not appointed an HOA board of directors. So I do have a cheat sheet on transition from developer to homeowner control. And you can find that on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. Go to our cheat sheets page and type in transition and developer, and it should pop right up. So question, what if they're not performing for the CCNR? So I'm guessing that your CCNRs have a provision that say that after a certain percentage of lots are sold, 
that the board should be appointed as a or elected as a homeowner control board and the developer will no longer have the weighted voting and will no longer serve on the board. And so if your developer is dragging their feet on that, what I would recommend you do is form a transition committee to help the developer make that transition, maybe with the developer's blessing or maybe without the developer's blessing. Reach out to an attorney that can help you with the transition process Talk with your management company about it. They should be giving the the developer advice about when the transition should be taking place and start documenting and writing the fact that, hey, the transition should have taken place. It hasn't yet. What is your intention, developer, going forward? Because you're violating the CCNRs right now. Okay, question 14. Please describe the Friday email concept that you mentioned. Is there a cheat sheet or other doc that explains more about what this would include? Great question. I don't have a cheat sheet on that, but I think that's a really good topic for a blog article for our firm. Make sure you're checking out our blog because we put a lot of great information in the blog for our firm and that can be found on our website. So just the Friday email. So what I would do is direct your manager that every Friday before they sign off for the day, that they send an email to the board with important information about what happened that week. So for example, what I worked on, what I accomplished, something that I wasn't able to accomplish, but my plan for working on it next week, any problems that I need direction on, that's pretty much it. Or any information that you want the board to know about, it can be fine-tuned and tailored for however your board wants the information to be given to the board. It's not a board packet. You don't want the board or the management company to say, this is like getting formatting board packets. This is unfair. This is too much work. No, this is just a informal email telling them what happened this week, what's my game plan for next week, and what do I need direction on anything from the board. And really, if the management company or the manager wants to have a good relationship with the board, this is just a path to do that because it's showing that you're working in between meetings on things and you're communicating all things that are the sign of an A-plus community manager. Our last question, our management company failed to send notification of tonight's open meeting. To whom should we complain? It depends because I have to know if any notification was provided. So I'm assuming this is an open board meeting. Under the law, the association is required to provide 48 hours notice of any open board meeting or any executive session board meeting. And I don't know, maybe they put it on the website or maybe they posted it on the common area. So I'd have to hear the management company's side to that. So what I would do is you're asking who you should complain to, I would go to the meeting tonight and ask the board, could you let us know how tonight's meeting was provided notice to the membership? How did you provide notice? And just remind them of their requirements under the law to provide that 48 hours notice. Now, if you want more information on the notice requirements, go to our cheat sheet on board meetings or compliance with the Arizona Open Meeting Law. And both of those cheat sheets can be found on our webpage at mulcahylawfirm.com. Okay, well, thanks again for joining us today for class number five of our 2022 virtual HOA Condo Academy. So great that we had over 107 people here and more than 12 on Facebook. I'd like to take this time again to thank the neighborhood services departments from the city of Avondale, Chandler, Glendale, Goodyear, Mesa, Peoria, Phoenix, Scottsdale, Surprise, and Tempe for their partnership and teamwork with our firm to put together these amazing virtual classes. 
a friendly reminder, our firm's live virtual First Friday free call-in will take place on June 3rd, First Friday of June at 9 a.m. You can visit our firm's website at mulcahylawfirm.com for more information. First Fridays is an opportunity for anybody, board member, homeowner, manager, to ask one question free of charge regarding your association. Finally, next month, we've got a great class topic lined up. We urge you to join us for class number six for our 2022 virtual HOA and Condo Academy, scheduled for Tuesday, June 21st at 11 a.m. Next month's topic is how to amend your association's CCNRs, bylaws, and rules. We're going to be discussing the new Arizona Supreme Court case that is going to be a game changer in how we're handling and managing CCNR amendments. And as always, we're going to have a free question and answer period at the end. So I hope you'll be joining us next month for our first Fridays on June 3rd, and then for our sixth class of the Virtual HOA Academy on Tuesday, June 21st at 11 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you for making your communities better. And we hope to see you soon at a future virtual event. Take care, everybody. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. The attend of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos, and podcast is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content in these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation.